five films nominated for Best Picture are... Well, folks, the red carpet has been ruled out. Tinseltown Glamour is in the air because it is the third annual Michael and Us Year in Review Extravaganza. Uh, I am your host, Will Sloan. People are calling me the Billy Crystal of the Michael and Us universe. And I'm here today with my co-host, Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. This is a tradition that we like to do every year on the podcast where we, you know, as the calendar turns to a new year, in this case, 2023, we like to look back on some of the episodes that we've done, some of the treasured memories that we've had, and just try to give a sense of order. Try to get a sense of what the trends have been by bestowing the most prestigious award that our industry can give, the Michael and Us um, Achievement Award, I want to (laughs) say. I don't know, whatever. But reflecting on this year, it occurs to me that um, when did we even start recording in person again? Um, We might have done a bit last year, but then... Uh, but I then was, Omicron hit. Omicron. And, and you were away. I was away. And then I was also away for a bit this year. Mm-hmm. So it's been on and off recording in person. But, you know, here we are. That's one trend. We've recorded in person more in general. But what's been your general sense of the year, 2022? Uh, politically, socially, culturally? <laughs> do you think the podcast in directions it's gone, subjects it's covered, has uh, said anything about this world that we live in? <laughs> Well, I think we're doing our best to, uh, I don't know, try to wring something out of a pretty sclerotic time uh, politically and culturally. I mean, I do think uh, my sense is just anecdotally is that we've been maybe a little less topical this year because it feels in some ways like there's not as much going on. And I know that I know that's a silly thing to say, because, of course, there's always lots of stuff going on. But I don't know if you compare it to like the beginning of 2020, (laughs) the sense of kind of possibility that existed and then, you know, the various ways that that sense of possibility was foreclosed, you know, both, you know, uh, in terms of what happened in a certain primary, and then also just with everything going into lockdown, not being able to record in person, not have, you know, most of us, well, all of us not really having normal lives for several years. I don't know. And then and then after all that, things kind of like returned. And it's kind of like, well, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, Joe Biden's president and like the virus is gone, but it's not actually gone. You know, have you found it a very discouraging disillusioning time have you felt that last year has just been a continual uh, air coming out of the balloon time yeah i mean and i think you see that everywhere and in terms of you know my own thinking and what has interested me in my writing a lot of it is trying to understand that you know i think you really see it in the i don't know the collapse of like the whole bitcoin nft bubble you know i was saying to you before we started recording when you know i went on a very protracted monologue about trump's nfts that i kind of wish we'd recorded but you know i think you know in the wake of uh, the pandemic, this was, you know, one of the ways that the machine, uh, I mean, I know I keep returning to this this metaphor, but, you know, the machine, you know, they, they tried to smash the reset button, you know, get the spluttering to stop, get it moving again. And, you know, the way you do that is you take the old things because we don't make anything new anymore culturally or politically, or, or if we do, we don't, we suffocate it. We don't allow it to grow or take power. And in lieu of that, you have uh, uh, fantasy things like Bitcoin and NFTs. Yeah, or you have your like history channel presidency or whatever where it's like, uh, is, is this going to be transformative? Is this going to be the New Deal? Well, no, but we're going to keep telling ourselves that it is. And hey, after the midterms, yeah, Biden's really going to get his mojo back and, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, and then in in the economic sphere, you have these things like Bitcoin and NFTs where it's like, 
literally just speculative investments, very faint pretense, not really a believable one to any kind of use value. But you create a bubble by basically bribing celebrities to go out and talk about how, you know, these are the most dynamic things ever. You get Matt Damon to, uh, you know, do that stupid ad where he's just doing fortune favors the bold or whatever. And or you have Larry David saying no to different inventions. And, you know, the message is like, you need to get on board with this. This is like, this is the next big thing. And it's like the bubble inflates because they convince enough people that that's true. And then, of course, like there's there's nothing there. So it just like deflates again. And I feel like, I don't know, things felt linear for me a little bit between, you know, 2015 and I don't know, uh, sometime in 2020. It felt like there was kind of an arc to things. Things were developing and changing. Um, There was possibility. And I feel like things have returned to a kind of more cyclical pattern, both politically and culturally not not um not in perpetuity but that's where we're at for now and i felt like that is one of our big tasks on the pod this year and in my own work has been trying to navigate and um explore and articulate that well for me on the podcast this year has been the year of Tubi. this has been the year where we and especially i have done a deep dive into what's happening on the world's greatest streaming service finding these documentaries that have been created as if by algorithm and I think it was fitting for this year because, as listeners know, my primary interest, my primary field of scholarship and study is the cinema. And this has been a bad year for the cinema. <laughs> uh, this is a year where, you know, the pandemic seems to have dealt, if not a fatal blow, then a very, very serious blow to traditional modes of theatrical exhibition. One after another, so-called serious movies for grown-ups have come out and have flopped one after another. And if yeah, honestly, Black Adam. Well, yes, <laughs> and, and that too. And, you know, every, there, well, actually, though, movies like that, movies like the Marvel movies, you just get a general sense. Stuff like the Doctor Strange sequel or Black Panther Wakanda Forever, they come out and they make their customary $400 million domestic, $800 million worldwide. <laughs> and you don't, you just don't get a general sense of excitement there's a sort of like going through the motions of it Uh, you know this year there have been a few movies that have got people excited top gun maverick Mm -hmm. uh, avatar both of which are to some extent i think kind of coasting on the fumes of you know there's almost a kind of like make movies great again quality to the fervor of them like well can't can we just believe in it again can we believe in the feeling of what this represented to us at one point can <laughs> so are you are you saying that uh, those movies are actually like bidenism in some way maybe <laughs> i mean i like them better than i, I like i was going to say yeah. i like joe biden but i think i think there is something to that but nevertheless um moving images are more popular popular than ever uh, con- <laughs> the motion picture it's all the rage folks <laughs> content is more popular than ever <laughs> things on screens are more popular than ever go to a family gathering right now and they're probably watching glass onion on netflix which i actually thought it was fun by the way you did okay i haven't seen it um <laughs> I, I don't know i didn't have my mike lanos goggles on so if i had to do an interpretation of it i don't know if i would have one but i did actually enjoy the experience of watching it although i don't think it's as good as knives out which is uh, which was more fun so every time I try to, you know, make a sweeping generalization about the way that culture is going and what that says about all of us, I kind of get stymied because it's 
going in a lot of different directions. A lot of these big Hollywood movies, these dramas for adults that have been flopping, I think are very much against the zeitgeist. A lot of people just don't care about Steven Spielberg being a kid and his parents divorcing right now. You know, a lot of people just don't care. Can you, I mean, I feel like, um, I don't know, because I've been watching Netflix for most of the year and, and I don't know, and just like watching older movies and I haven't really been keeping up with things. I mean, what are ex- a few examples of these? I mean, you mentioned the Steven Spielberg thing, but like, what are some examples of quote unquote movies for adults that have flopped besides Black Adam, of course, which I mentioned? Well, just this week, uh, Babylon, the new Hollywood spectacular by Damien Giselle, the director of La La Land, uh, became one of the biggest flops of the year. A couple weeks ago, David O. Russell's Amsterdam, with a starry cast that included Christian Bale and Robert De Niro and a million other stars, also flopped really, really hard. They've been just flopping hard, one after another. She said the drama about the journalists at the New York oh, Times yeah. who, who broke the with with Carrie Mulligan and um, and uh, you know, granddaughter of name names. Yeah, <laughs> uh, epic epic flaw. <laughs> One after another, these movies that feel like some out of touch studio executive's idea to connect with the zeitgeist. I, I liked the Fablemans actually. I thought it was quite good, but you can understand why you know mass audiences right now are simply not interested in Steven Spielberg reflecting on the state of his parents' marriage. Uh, nevertheless content is thriving and i i feel ambivalent about that i feel ambivalent about the flattening of all content into this same paste that people you know after their long day at the factory (laughs) (laughs) uh, whether it's a white collar or a blue collar factory uh, (laughs) after punching their time card come back and passively veg out in front of this content all of which is the same whether it's a peppa pig video or glass (laughs) onion or a reality show i I do want to read just a a paragraph or two from a book that i know you also have uh, the philosophy of modern song by bob dylan I'm not sure if this is directly related to what I was just saying. It's a point Dylan makes that is so hackneyed, so cliched, that I think it's very easy to make fun of. But I also want to read it and just see what you think about this. He's talking about Pete Seeger's song, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy. And he's talking about uh, opposition to the Vietnam War. You know, the Smothers Brothers had brought Pete Seeger onto their show to play this this protest song, and CBS wouldn't broadcast it, and this led to, you know, Walter Cronkite coming out against the war. It was a big deal, and, and Dylan writes, Everybody was tuned into the same TV shows. People against the war, people in favor of it. We all had a shared baseline cultural vocabulary. <laughs> People who wanted to see the Beatles on a variety show had to watch flamenco dancers, baggy pants comics, ventriloquists, and maybe even a scene from Shakespeare. Today the medium contains multitudes, and man needs only pick one thing he lacks and feast exclusively on a stream dedicated to it. There's 24 hours of blues, surf music, left-wing whining, right-wing badgering, any strap of belief imaginable. There are stories as interesting as lemming suicides and totally true, like the fact that whale songs have inexplicably lowered in pitch 30% since the 60s. But these stories are buried on animal documentary channels where they will probably never capture the general public's imagination. Turns out the best way to shut people up isn't to take away their forum. It's to give them all separate pulpits. Ultimately, most folks will listen to what they already know and read what they already agree with. They will devour pale retreads of the familiar and perhaps never get to discover they may have a taste for Shakespeare or flamenco dancing. It's the equivalent of letting an eight-year-old pick their own diet. Inevitably, they'll choose chocolate for every meal and end up undernourished with rotted teeth and weighing 500 pounds. 
again, a very cliched, uh, maybe even hackneyed point. Although as I was reading it, I was thinking about those cool duder and wet movie videos we watch uh, where, you know, they're just consuming the same like four or five like franchises over and over again. They're going to the conventions and seeing like, I know, fifth generation Freddy versus Jason shit. They're buying Freddy merch. They're buying Beetlejuice merch over and over and over again. And they're buying those little whatever they're called, the little like bobblehead toys that are themed or whatever. And I don't know, like with the online world, I actually do feel like I'm weirdly exposed to more views than I ever have been before. I'm exposed to more different, more kinds of bad takes from all over the political spectrum than I ever would have before. I I know everything Ben Shapiro and Elon Musk have ever said. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I am am actually being exposed to all sorts of things. Um, So I don't know how to reconcile that with Bob Dylan's well, uh, truism. I, I don't know. I mean, because, you know, yeah, what Dylan says there, as you observed, is kind of a, you know, it's a pretty cliched point. It's And I mean, it's correct in, in the sense that there used to be more of a monoculture um, and, you know, culture and cultural identity are much more heterogeneous now. And there's much more atomization culturally because... You know, as he says, and as we've observed like a million times on this podcast, you just choose a niche for any kind of, you know, media consumption or, or political consumption or whatever, for any kind of media consumption, whether it has, you know, whether it's entertainment or politics or anything. And there's, you know, something's there to cater to that niche. So that lends itself to a kind of atomization. And as he put it in, in kind of the standard way, there's less of a sort of baseline reality. You know, people have their own uh, private truths. There isn't a kind of um, public truth, a consensus reality in quite the same way as there used to be. Now, I think all of that's true, but I also agree with what you just said, because, of course, it's not as if, you know, everyone always talks about how siloed everything is now. And like, that's true. But the thing is, the silos are shouting at each other all the time, right? The silos are symbiotic with the other ones. Like, you can't have just Fox News by itself. You also got to have MSNBC and vice versa. And that applies to, you know, the sensibilities they embody as well. Like, so much is, uh, is about reacting to things you don't like. I mean, we We've gotten this far in the podcast without talking about it yet. But I mean, you think about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and everything that's been exposed by that, where, you know, it's so clear that all these right wing free speech guys who, you know, at least initially celebrated Musk's takeover of Twitter, you know, all these guys who their whole thing is this ostensibly this free speech maximalism. And then, you know, what they actually want is like they want a mod who's their mod, who's going to ban the people and punish the people they don't like. You have all these right wing platforms like, you know, Trump's stupid like Twitter rival, like uh, what's it, Truth Social, where, you know, apparently a lot of what goes on in there is just people complaining about fucking getting shadow banned on Twitter or like, look at this bad lib take that's on Twitter. So in a sense, there is kind of still a consensus reality. It's just a very fraught one. Like it's Twitter and it's both very siloed in the sense that uh, of the passage you just read. And it's also, I don't know, very kind of heterogeneous in its own way or like very, you know, it's very polarized. People are constantly shouting at each other. I feel the same way as you do. I'm just constantly exposed to all kinds of, I don't know, exotic uh, perspectives on all kinds of things. I mean, this uh, Greta Thunberg, Andrew Tate thing, I'm not going to quote any of the deranged tweets I saw, but, uh, you know, there were a few. And I feel like, um, you know, in the days when everyone was just watching the Ed Sullivan show, you didn't you didn't have that. You weren't exposed to that. <laughs> Link it back to just what I'm feeling culturally. I'm, I'm getting a sense of just all of culture being part of this huge soup where very little is all that exciting, very little feels new and vanguard pushing. The horizons of culture feel narrower. The level of engagement 
feels narrower. The cross-communication between our cultural producers and us, the consumers, communication isn't happening. And yet there's a vast pool of content, vaster than we've ever seen. And we're all consuming so much of it, but it's not meaning what it once did. Maybe I can uh, piggyback on this discussion to transition into uh, the first of our award categories, which Uh, is best end of history movie. Now here, uh, just further to what uh, you were just saying, uh, my nominee is going to be from episode 344, Socialism with Disney and Characteristics. This was the Buzz Lightyear movie, whatever it was actually. What was it called? It was called Lightyear. Okay, it was called Lightyear. Now, this is an example of, I had so much fun. Like, we went to, we actually went to see this in a theater. We, had a, we made a little day out of it. You know, I had a great, a great time talking about it. I didn't have that much fun, <laughs> I gotta be honest. I didn't enjoy seeing this movie at all. You and I really experience, I mean, the, we don't have a consensus reality for this podcast because I just have a great time watching watching these like <laughs> awful like IP movies and you don't have a good time. But I mean, that movie I thought was so much fun. I mean, and obviously it wasn't actually, you know, whatever, it, whatever. It was, it was okay. It was an okay kids movie. It's fine. I don't want to rag on it too much, but I was interested in it for two reasons. And it is my nominee for this category for, I suppose, uh, because of one of them. The first non-category related reason um, is that just it became one of these just as almost everything does one of these stupid sort of culture war, you know, these bits of terrain where just there was a whole right wing moral panic about it. And then when you watch the movie, it's like, okay, like even saying this film is woke is giving it too much credit. (laughs) It's like, well, I mean, the culture war, if you've forgotten, folks, and you might have. is that you'll recall in the Buzz Lightyear movie, there was a brief, blinker you'll miss it, same-sex kiss. Mm -hmm. A lesbian couple kisses in the film. And this happened, this just happened to happen at a moment when DeSantis's Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida was a subject of great controversy when Disney, a huge, huge business in Florida, was experiencing a lot of pressure to condemn this bill. And whoever was in charge of Disney at the time, maybe it was Bob Iger, I can't remember, was uh, hemming and hawing about whether or not to actually make a statement about this. And then eventually they did make a statement condemning it, but it was kind of too little too late. But then, of course, it really did trigger the right, uh, as it so often does, and happened to happen at this moment when the Buzz Lightyear movie with the kiss (laughs) in it happened. So it was this just this perfect storm of stupidity. But the, the real reason I nominated this movie for this category, Best End of History Movie, is the other thing which I think interested me ultimately more than the culture war aspect, which is the fact that it is yet another example of these films. Uh, You know, Space Jam, A New Legacy is another example of one like this. I think in its own way, the the new Matrix film, which we talked about earlier this year, in a different sort of way, probably a a more intelligent sort of way, was an example of this as well, or it explored this. The the algorithm that produces culture has become kind of quasi self-aware. In Space Jam, A New Legacy, I mean, the algae rhythm, Algae rhythm, Algae yes. rhythm, the Don Cheadle character. He's the antagonist, but he's also the algorithm in the Warner Brothers server. Warner, Warner Brothers, like it's a character in the movie. The parent company of the movie is part of the text of the movie. Same with probably just, just over a year ago, we did uh, the, the Simpsons and Plus Aversary. Same thing. Disney is now woven into the text. Lisa Simpson is singing about how you can can buy stock and the share value keeps going up, etc. And the Buzz Lightyear movie sort of rewrote history where it was like, this movie uh, was the movie that Andy from Toy Story saw in 1995 and it set his uh, heart and mind on fire or whatever. 
Disney did not own Pixar in 1995 or whenever Toy Story came out. So this is like Disney making an IP movie where it does like a revisionist history of the past. And it's like, see, we've always been woke, you know? And the antagonist character in that movie kind of was like DeSantisism. It was like, come on, Buzz, let's erase the timeline before all these newfangled ideas came in. So that is my nominee for best end of history movie. Uh, I'm not going to be able to match the fury of your case for that. (laughs) An obvious nominee for best end of history movie would be Forrest Gump. It's kind of the end of history movie. So it was too obvious. I'm not nominating it. Instead, I'm going to nominate the film from episode 314, which is Speechless. That is the Michael Keaton, Gina Davis romantic comedy. Came out in 1994, and that was the film inspired by the real-life love story between James Carville and Mary Madeline. Is that her name? The, the, the two. Yes, yes. Carville, and he was the Democratic strategist. She was the Republican strategist. Left and right. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, they get together. I mean, this movie was not a lot of fun to watch. It was, you know, a pretty pretty bottom-of-the-barrel, shitty well, it, 90s Incidentally, rom-com. I nominated this one, but it was for movie I least remember. So that's <laughs> jumping ahead a bit. Uh, I think this is a movie that could not be made now. Uh, if it was made now, it would be laughed. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was particularly admired at the time, but it would be laughed out of the algorithm if it were made now. Uh, a movie about a Republican strategist and a Democratic strategist who get together, and that's great, and they unite over common values. <laughs> so the next category, biggest stretch for the podcast, I have to be honest, my initial nominee was Lightyear. Looking back on it, I thought, okay, it's got two seconds or a couple kisses, but you've made the case. Yeah, you brought me on board. I mean, it's a good thing you said this because, uh, I mean, so first of all, yeah, I fervently disagree for, for yeah. all, every, all the reasons I just You've said. you changed my mind. But also, I, didn't, I was not able to come up with a nominee for this category because nothing is a stretch for this podcast or nothing that we choose to do. We've, uh, we've never had a bad episode. We've never had a bad take. It's flawless. Yeah, I if I had one, I'm, I'm sure I I'm sure I could think of one. I just, uh, if I had one episode, I would take back. It would be the one that we did right after the Capitol riot. I think I took it a little too seriously. <laughs> but that was not this year, so it doesn't count. Yeah. So instead, my nominee for biggest stretch for the podcast is episode 380. Welcome to Mooseport. Interesting. The uh, comedy starring Ray Romano as a normal guy who runs against ex-president Gene Hackman as mayor of the small town of Mooseport. I thought there was not a lot going on there. I thought that we really had to struggle to get any ideology out of that. And I really, at, at certain moments in that, started to think, okay, maybe we can't do any movie. <laughs> and maybe, maybe we can't keep this podcast going forever. It's um, like there's a certain kind of movie that we've done on the podcast and that has often been very fruitful to us, which is the apolitical political comedy. Yeah. And often that's fruitful, but then I think this is a category of movie that we have to stop doing as much anymore, because at a certain point, you start repeating, like, yes, the void is the point, but how many times can the void be the point? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, that movie, uh, which, I mean, that's... I also hated watching it. Oh, it was awful. In the last few weeks, uh, we watched that, and it's already, I've completely memory-holed it. But I, I don't know, like... Maybe we have different interpretations of this category because even though that movie, yeah, it was hard to wring anything out of it. I mean, I don't think it was a stretch. It has everything, you know, like on paper, it has everything that should make a good Michael and Us episode. And it's like, it's the movie's fault, not ours, if it didn't work. So in future years, we are retiring this category. Agreed. Thing we liked when we were young that holds up the least. For me, there was only one possible option. It was Forrest Gump. Interesting. I uh, liked it very much when I saw it at age eight, nine. 
thought it was a sweeping portrait of Americana. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this movie. I mean, our episode on it was kind of just a one a, of our a most rant. popular episodes, by the way. This movie is almost everything I hate. Yeah. What, what would you even say about it? It's just, it's overwhelming how awful it is. Yeah. I, <laughs> I did not like it either, although I was actually watching it for the first time. Yeah. Um, and in fairness, I do think the culture has somewhat reevaluated the consensus view of what that movie is. And that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? I mean, if I just want to sum it up in one scene, it's the scene where Forrest is in Washington. He's come back from the Vietnam War hero. He meets with Jenny, who she's caught up in the protest movement, and he goes with Jenny to... To, like, the generic, like, counterculture HQ. Yeah, it's counterculture headquarters where you've got Black Panther guys. Students for Democratic Society is there. You've got the socialists. Yeah, the hippies. And and they're all all bad. Yeah. And that's what he's against. And (laughs) that's what I hate about this movie. Yeah, pure Gingrichism, warmed over Nixonism for the 1990s. Awful. Um, my nominee for this category, and I mean, this one is maybe a little bit of a, a stretch because I only saw this movie once as a kid, but I do remember thinking it was pretty good. And that's The Truman Show. You know, Strong I, contender for me as well. Yeah, I just thought that uh, The Truman Show it was nowhere near as interesting as I remembered. I will say another reason I wanted to bring it up here is sometimes we miss things. Um, we made one absolutely glaring omission in talking about that movie, which is The Truman Show House is a house that Matt Gates lived in as a kid, <laughs> which is incredible. So, so yeah, that would be my nominee, uh, nominee for this category, The Truman Show. Well, we had a lot of pushback to that one. We were against that movie. We didn't like it. A lot of people saying it's actually good. I'm saying, watch it. It's bad. <laughs> Thing that we liked when we were young that holds up surprisingly well. Uh, do you have a nominee for this? Yeah, so this one, you know, again, it's maybe a little bit of a twerking the category just a bit, because again, it's a movie I only saw once when I was a kid, and it scared the bejesus out of me. But we watched it again this year in what I think was one of my favorite episodes to do, both because I enjoyed watching the film, and also because I just thought the film, despite being from, I think, 1999, had a tremendous amount to say about the present. I mean, that's David Cronenberg's existence. Uh, I really enjoyed watching that. I mean, I felt like even though it was a sort of Web 1.0 movie... Um, um, it came out in 1999. It captured something about, I don't know, the, the, the fluid nature of public identity, you know, in, in the internet age, in the, in, the tw- in the age of Twitter. The fact that there's no foundation to anything in that movie. People just are, you know, one kind of character. And then when, you know, uh, the vibe shifts and they, you know, unplug from the game or whatever, except actually they're still plugged into the game. Uh, you know, now they got a new arc. They got a new character. They got a new identity. And everything is just sort of reactive to what's around them. And I feel like perhaps inadvertently, although perhaps not, that it captures very well something about the world that we live in and the fact that things feel, you know, quite ephemeral. And again, there's no kind of uh, consensus reality, as Mr. Dylan himself put it. Well, for me, the winner in this category, and this is not so much for this one specific movie, but for what it represents, for the franchise that it represents, and that's Godzilla 1985, which we watched during the summer. Godzilla, who I've loved all my life, he's a good man, uh, has a good heart, He's one of those characters who just keeps finding ways to adapt to whatever current circumstances he's in. He's an endlessly interesting, endlessly relevant character. Godzilla 1985, I certainly enjoyed revisiting because uh, I, I just liked it. I like the look of it. I like the cityscape. I like the sky. I like Raymond Burr doing his monologue at the end. I had a lot of fun watching that. I liked uh, recording with Justin. We should have him back on that uh, we, for, for a future episode. We absolutely should. I, I was lucky enough to see this one at a drive-in this summer on a print, which 
Oh my God, what an experience. I, I felt like I dreamed it. I, I really did think the Raymond Burr shit was very funny, where it's like, he's literally like Leonard Nimoy in The Simpsons, where it's like, you didn't do anything. It's, like, <laughs> it's so great where you're grafting on a major character after the movie's already been made. And by definition, he cannot change the plot. And he's such a sour He just gives these didactic monologues. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nature has a way sometimes of reminding man of just how small he is. She occasionally throws up the terrible offsprings of our pride and carelessness to remind us of how puny we really are in the face of a tornado, an earthquake, or a Godzilla. The reckless ambitions of man are often dwarfed by their dangerous consequences. For now, Godzilla, that strangely innocent and tragic monster, has gone to Earth. Whether he returns or not, or is never again seen by human eyes, the things he has taught us remain. But Godzilla, just an endlessly relevant character. I mean, if you folks have seen the recent film Shin Godzilla, you've seen how Godzilla can be relevant in the current age as well. And uh, yeah, I I also like it too in this CGI uh, digital landscape that we live in. Just seeing a rubber suit, you know, just seeing the weight and texture and mass of a guy in a rubber suit knocking down a cardboard building. I think it's very beautiful. Now, we have some new categories. Who knows how long these will last in future installments of this annual tradition? This might be a this year only category. Best Tubi movie. We watched a lot of films on Tubi this year, and my winner is actually going to be one that only I watched and and Luke didn't see. But Luke probably feels as I if... I know what it is. He probably feels as if he's seen it just for how much I've talked about it and how much I've brought it up. This movie is like a bullet in my brain, and it's Trump versus the Illuminati from episode number 373. This is a computer animated cartoon that lasts just a little over an hour uh, about a clone of Donald Trump who lives in a sort of post-apocalyptic future space world and he's got to fight the Illuminati who are represented by like a satanic-like being. He's not actually Donald Trump. He's a clone of Donald Trump, but he but he sounds like him. And the whole movie captured my fancy because I couldn't tell it where it was coming from, whether it was a Democratic or Republican I couldn't understand like what the joke was supposed to be. It felt like a movie it, it, that had been created by algorithms. Well, yeah, this is the thing that's very interesting about Tubi is it seems like it's less a streaming platform than it is a new mode of production. Yeah, like it's 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 just sort of generating these things. I mean, we also watched my nominee. Incidentally, was also a Trump thing. It was the one that like was just was it was supposed to be a Trump documentary, and it was kind of a pro-Trump documentary. Was it called In Trump We Trust? In Trump We Trust. Yeah. I think the episode was called Trust the Plan, and this one basically mostly consisted of just footage from 2016 Trump rallies. And I actually found it quite interesting to watch because it was like, you know, again, sort of, you know, just, I mean, it's it's barely a real movie. And yet it allowed you to see all this footage of Donald Trump sort of unfiltered through like any kind of liberal, uh, you know, panic about it or whatever. And so I thought that was very interesting. But to come back to Tubi, I mean, you know, just to sort of justify a little bit why we're doing this category. I mean, we also watched the, the Joe Biden, like Hunter Biden, documentary we watched uh, the u2 documentary about bono's uh 
activism and charity work. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I guess the Trump versus the Illuminati thing is is an example of, you know, it's it's pretty out there even for Tubi. It really is just this kind of pastiche, like entirely postmodern and without any kind of foundation, a, a copy without an original, you know. <laughs> so Tubi does seem to still have, you know, um, there are still lib movies and there are still MAGA movies or whatever. But there is just something about the down market quality of them, the way they do seem to be created, as you said, as if by algorithm that I think is very interesting. Also, I recommend Tubi if you want to watch old episodes of The Dick Cavett Show or Johnny Carson. I've, uh, Which I'm sure everybody listening. <laughs> I've, I've certainly had some good fun with both of those. A Chinese clone of the 45th U.S. President Donald J. Trump survives the Earth's destruction by escaping his maximum security lab. His petri dish grown body, fused with the latest AI technology, possesses eternal life. So, next category movie I least remember. Now, this is a bit of an unfair category because obviously it's going to advantage stuff from the first half of the year. <laughs> so what was yours? Well, I already told you. It's the Michael Keaton one, which okay. Speechless, is that speechless. what it's called? Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, when I, when I was going through our episode list for the year... I saw Michael Keaton's face and I was like, okay, I remember that there was a movie with Michael Keaton and I remember that it had something to do with partisanship and transcending it, but it's like, it could be literally any movie. You forgot the James Carville thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, what the fuck was the movie with the two ex-presidents that we watched? That was My uh, Fellow Americans. My Fellow America. It could be any movie like that. Hell, it could basically be Welcome to Mooseport. I don't know. Well, I generally have a better memory for the movies that we've done than you do, I think. Uh, I remember... Uh, my fellow Americans very well. Um, <laughs> so this category is not the same as worst thing, because there are certain things that really stick out in my memory. So the movie I least remember, and I don't even think this might not even have been bad. I just don't remember what it was. In episode 332, we watched something called White Noise. That's not the Don DeLillo adaptation with Adam Driver that's currently playing. It was a documentary called White Noise. I believe Richard Spencer was in it. Oh, this is a great documentary. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've seen, it, it I've seen it twice, in fairness. But okay, maybe it was. I just don't remember anything about it. This, this is a documentary which traces, you know, three figures that broadly you know are associated with the alt-right although they all sort of uh, represent you know different i don't know different facets of it. you got richard spencer who's the sort of you know cosplaying trust fund kid but whose you know ideology is just you know he's he's an open fascist you got lauren southern who's a product of um canadian far-right media um and then you've got mike cernovich who is all a guy right. who comes out of sort of like self-help kind of culture and he's just sort of drifts from one kind of grift to another um and that movie you know it, it chronicled all of them you know it had some pretty amazing little scenes in it you see the descent of richard spencer from a figure who was getting profiled in the new york times as like meet the debonair nazi who's you know whatever uh to like you know there's that great scene where he's just like doing his tour to spread you know the gospel of uh i don't know the fourth reich or whatever and then it just nobody shows up and he doesn't need a microphone and he's just like it's this little sad college auditorium and there's like 10 people to see him you really don't remember this film um, no, I, I actually, now that you're saying it, I remember a bit of the Cernovich stuff, but I don't remember any of the, any of the other stuff, honestly. Um, I'm sure it was good. Um, I've seen a lot of documentaries for this show. Thing from a movie that has continued to haunt me, and this could be positively or negatively, you know, the, the things we watch, 
oftentimes, like I say, they're just little silver bullets that get in your head and and they don't leave you. Um, My selection, there's a bit of recency bias here. This is one that we watched within the last three months. And it's a movie that I've enjoyed for quite a while. But on this last viewing, there's one particular scene that got me and it's Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris. This is the movie with the real heroes, uh, the three boys who foiled that terrorist attack on the train. And the unique thing about the film is that he cast the real guys, and much of the film is devoted to just quotidian, almost boring scenes of their day-to-day, you know, dreadful day-to-day lives leading up to this attack. And the scene that got me was Spencer Stone, the leader of the boys. He's been working at Jamba Juice. He wants to join the military. So he trains, he trains, he trains, he, he wants to be a way. paratrooper, is it, or something? That's right. Yeah, he wants to do some kind of, he wants to be like a, an elite soldier of some kind. And, you know, he, he does everything that can be asked of him. He's rejected because of his eyesight, and then he's out. And what haunts me about this, this to me is Clint Eastwood's late period filmmaking at its best. No music, no even emphasis on this scene, just a heartbreaking moment of rejection. It's the banality of existential disappointment, which you think should be this, you know, there should be a grandness to it. There should be some kind of, yeah, grandiose tragedy to something like that. And in reality, that's not how any of us, you know, mostly experiences that kind of disappointment. That scene, I mean, he's at an army recruitment center that's at like, I don't know, just a strip mall. There's probably, it's probably sandwiched between like Church of Scientology and like a payday loans store or something. And just some bored, you know, JAG officer or something is telling him like, yeah, no, sorry, you didn't, you didn't pass. You gotta, you gotta just be like a shitty infantryman or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Heartbreaking. Your choice? So mine is going to be, um, well, just the whole movie, Tim's Vermeer, I suppose. <laughs> um, I'm glad we got that one although, in here. Although, although, you know, I suppose, uh, I feel like specifically that film illuminated something for me about how the the libertarian view of the world essentially strips it of any beauty or mystery. You know, we talked on our episode, our recent episode about the Santa Claus too. We you know talked a lot around the theme of disenchantment, and it's like to me, if anything is disenchanted, the world. You know, the it's hyper commodification. Almost everything has an instrumental use, even the self. We talk about, you know, personal brands and, you know, that kind of thing. Everything is everything can be commodified. And you see with Tim's Vermeer how, you know, you have the, the central character in that who is, you know, supposed to be this, you know, Promethean uh, creator or whatever. He's part of, you know, he's the jo- he's a job creator. He's part of the, you know, command center that, you know, the, the supercomputer that keeps everything moving forward. And, you know, he applies all of this elaborate technical knowledge, does all this research to produce this Vermeer. And what he produces is not a Vermeer. <laughs> it's actually just a copy. It's an airsatz like version of something. The movie even disproves its own thesis because then when he goes and he goes to, was it Buckingham Palace or something? And he looks at the actual Vermeer and then he's like, words can't describe it. Nothing could capture it. And it's like, well, exactly. My friend, Tim, <laughs> <Yeah>. painted a Vermeer. <laughs> yeah. He painted a Vermeer. I mean, yeah, that movie, one thing that's so offensive about it is the reduction of Vermeer to just, isn't it amazing how realistic his paintings were? Isn't it amazing that he could he could paint with light in such a convincing way? And there's so much more going on in those paintings. Th- this is something else that uh, you observed when you watched it that I think has really stuck with me is 
is the sort of chauvinism about the past that you see come through in a movie like this. Because there's that incredible sequence where, you know, he's talking about how Vermeer, you know, helped develop this technology, this mirror technology that allowed art and painting to be more realistic. And then it's like Pendulette showing you, well, here's what the art of ancient, here's how they drew people in ancient Egypt. And here's how they drew people in ancient Rome. And the idea that there's this kind of just linear trajectory towards greater and greater realism, which is just an extension of, you know, our mastery of technology and our corresponding ability to master nature and the world around us. I mean, if you actually have that viewpoint, if that's actually your perspective on the past, there's really no reason why you would ever consume anything made or written or painted, you know, I don't know, before like the 19th century or even, but fuck, I mean, if you wanted to really apply the thesis before like, you know, the digital age, because everything, everything just becomes disposable. Everything's primitive. And I, uh, I don't accept that at all. I think that art, visual and otherwise across time has an intrinsic value that is, you know, not attached to anything as crude as, you know, how quote unquote realistic it is. Yeah. I mean, if you want realistic paintings, you can find them. There were other people at the time who were painting almost as realistically as as Vermeer and they don't get remembered like Vermeer. Yeah, just to just to drive this home a little bit more. I mean, I think that the reason that film has stuck with me so much is that it or, or has haunted me is that it really lays bare the anti-humanist philosophy that is at its core and, and the core of its creator and uh, and his ideology. If you really accept the premise that all of a uh, human culture is just this line from being like primitive and unrealistic to technologically sophisticated and realistic then you, by definition, reject the idea that there's anything fixed about being human that transcends history and time. Um, so, you know, you can't do what I did a few years ago and, like, read War and Peace and find that it actually has a tremendous amount to say just about what it means to be a person in the world or anything like that, because that's primitive. Um, and I just I just don't accept that. And, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not something I would want to accept. Think about how much you're excluding, how much you're writing off, how much you're discarding if you adopt that point of view. 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I do have one more thing to say about this, which is that one of our listeners who, uh, I'm afraid I don't know their name, um, I mean, this is their avatar. Um, okay. So yeah, this is uh, Idris Elba, uh, one of our listeners. That's the avatar. After we did Tim's Vermeer, they sent me, you know, that AI thing that uh, has been drawing, you know, it's going to put everyone out of, it's yeah. going to put artists out of work and yeah, stuff, yeah, speaking yeah, of which. Yeah. So they gave it the instructions, uh, Pendulette Art by Johannes Vermeer, and this is what it came up with. Well, it looks better than the real thing, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh man. No one else can see these. We're going to we're going to I'll I'll post them so you can take a look on the Patreon, but uh Yeah, no, he looks great. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Thanks to the listener who sent that in. Well, finally we get to our last two categories, our most important ones. I'll start with the negative one. Worst movie. As always, hugely competitive category. Uh this one was so easy for me. I knew right away. What is it for you? The Alexandra Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi documentary. I think that is the worst thing. Easily the worst thing. Pelosi in the house. Pelosi in the house. I mean, there are films that are, you know, so bad they're good. There are films that are, I don't know, so kind of mainstream and dogmatically normie that we're able to actually, you know, peel off the artifice and, you know, find buried treasure. 
and I don't know, this movie is not, that movie was not one of those movies. I mean, granted, this is in my head because we just did it a few weeks ago and you wrote an essay about Alexandra Pelosi, a very well-received essay, by the way. Congratulations. But uh, if you haven't read Will's essay on the cinema of Alexandra Pelosi, the only, the only such essay that I'm sure will ever be written. And yet, does uh, she send me flowers? No. <laughs> but that movie, I mean, you know, we don't need to spend too much time on this because we just did an episode on it. But I mean, you know, it's like there's no perspective except just like an obsequious one. Like it's not even an interesting hagiography. It's just the parts of Nancy Pelosi's career it chooses to highlight, I feel like are completely arbitrary. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, so for mine, I'm going to give you two, one that's the worst and one that's kind of the second worst. <laughs> but they each represent different strains. Interesting. The worst is the conservative one. And uh, it's 2,000 Mules by Dinesh D'Souza. Yeah. Low-hanging fruit, maybe. But, I mean, if we're just talking about a movie that ticks all the boxes, incompetent filmmaking, vile in everything that it represents, this is the movie that... Uh, it's it's Dinesh trying to prove once and for all that the 2000 election was stolen. And the, two, two, the 2000 and uh, the tw- 2020 well, what did election. I say? Yeah. What, 2020, sorry. The 2020, I have the, the 2000 clock. election actually was stolen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Freudian slip. Um, but no, it's him trying to prove once and for all that the 2020 election was stolen and he's got groundbreaking evidence to show it. He's got surveillance footage of these mules who are well, first, I think he wants us to think that they're stuffing the ballot boxes with fake ballots because he, sh- he shows people putting multiple ballots in. But then, well, because he, he can't prove that, it's that there are these, these coordinated, these paid Democratic hacks yeah. who are basically going to homeless camps and getting them to fill out ballots and, you know. Yeah, probably Saul Alinsky's in there somewhere. Yeah, I can't George, George Soros, yeah. I'm sure. Um, but, uh, but also, just by the standards of a Dinesh movie, it's it's no good. Like half of it is just him with with you know his fought, his panel of like yeah Charlie Kirk yeah. whatever his panel of losers yeah. So like I just even just as a movie to watch this was very low. Can, can I say though? I mean, um, you know, as for things that sort of sum up 2022 to me, I mean that movie I feel like actually has a lot to say about. 2022 because 2022 i feel like is the year that you know uh, i don't know trumpism started displaying some like very serious loser mindset i mean maybe you could argue that that's right after he lost the election but i mean right after trump lost the election there were still these delusions of grandeur about like like there were people watching biden swearing in and being like all right any minute now you know, National Guard's going to come in. They're going to they're going to take all the uh, satanic pizza pedophile Democrats like, I don't know, to Guantanamo or something. Thousands of sealed. There's 2000 sealed indictments, whatever. And I don't know, like in the Republican primaries go ahead of the midterms this year, Trump obviously boosted a lot of candidates. It's kind of been exaggerated a little bit how many candidates he boosted lost. The majority of his candidates won, although I guess you'd say many of them were at the state level. A lot of his higher profile candidates lost. You know, J.D. Vance won, but that was kind of a given. You could say Trump gave him a boost in the primary, which is probably true. I don't think he's going to be um, that unorthodox a Republican senator. Anyway, the point is Trump helped make sure that all these people got nominated at various levels, specifically on the criterion that they accepted the premise that the 2020 election was stolen. And I don't know, so much of what gave Trumpism in 2016 a transgressive allure that gave some people the idea anyway, uh, albeit a false one, but a a compelling one nonetheless, that it was a kind of anti-establishment insurgent campaign. So much of it had to do with Trump's like winner mindset. You know, it's like uh, we've been losing for too long because of the critics, the censors, you know, the scolds, all of that. We're going to start winning again. 
You know, you're very, gonna get tired of winning. You're gonna get you're gonna get sick of winning. And Trumpism over the last year, especially, and the Dinesh movie captures it perfectly. It is just peak loser mindset. It's all just complaining about oh they were unfair and they took the election away from us and like you know they're having to basically throw chicken entrails on a sundial to prove that the election was stolen or whatever. And you know they end up nominating all these kooks who it turns out are like actually too weird for an America that is still you know there are lots of people who. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats need, um, you know, to win a midterm who are just pretty normie and they want their taxes cut or whatever. They don't like the weirdness. They don't like the instability. And you know what else people don't like? You know what the like populist component of Trumpism and the MAGA base doesn't like? They don't like whining and whinging about, you know, how the election was stolen, all of that. Um, so, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it, it, you know, it's going to be interesting in the coming year to see what happens with Trump's presidential campaign and, you know, whether Republican elites presumably are going to have one candidate or several who are going to run against Trump, um, who they're going to run against Trump. To me right now, you know, I would still be astonished if Trump wasn't the Republican presidential nominee in 2024, if he wants to be. But I don't know, Trumpism has really lost something this year. It's lost whatever, albeit fake, edge that it might have once had. And I think you can, uh, you really saw that with Dinesh's stupid movie, which I agree was awful. Uh, so my other, my other choice, the second worst, that is really the worst, that represents the liberal sphere, because let's face it, the conservative one isn't going to animate me like the liberal one is. <laughs> I also picked an Alexandra Pelosi movie for this, but I went in a different direction. I picked San Francisco 2.0 from yeah. episode 351. Uh, that was her film about uh, the exciting tech takeover. Silicon Valley is expanding north into San Francisco, and it's turning my hometown into a power city. But some residents feel they're being left behind. I found this just utterly loathsome, just representative of so many horrible trends in liberalism over the last 40 years. She takes this Silicon Valley takeover of San Francisco entirely at face value. A couple of scenes really linger for me. In particular, that scene where a local gallery that's been in downtown for 50 years is closing because the landlords have tripled the rent. Alexandra Pelosi shows that shows us that a bit. You know, she shows us uh, the stadium that's being torn down that represents so many memories and so many things. Shows us the abandoned factory that's being raised and replaced by uh, some gentrified neighborhood. And she basically comes to the conclusion that, well, you know, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. That's basically her perspective, unstated, but that's it. Also, a boring film that I didn't that I didn't enjoy watching. <laughs> you didn't care for. So actually, no, that's my number one. M move aside, Dinesh. That's it. <laughs> so uh, finally, we have uh, best movie, which you know I uh, I had some fun with this category as well. Uh, yeah, I mean a lot of lot of candidates, a lot of contenders. Uh, some that have some contenders have come up already. Existence was a real contender. The fifteen seventeen to Paris, honestly, bit of a contender for me too. But I decided to go back to the very very beginning of last year and pick uh, the movie covered in episode number three hundred two, Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. Oh hell yeah! And to me, this is the anti San Francisco two point oh. Oh man, it's so good. Uh, uh, this is his documentary fantasia about his memory of the Winnipeg of his childhood. Almost nothing in it is exactly true. But it is true in a deeper sense. It's about the memory of this city that has been lost. I mean, it's the ecstatic truth. 
And if I can just boil down the movie into one section, I think of his indignation that the local Eaton's department store is being closed. This Eaton's department store that meant so much to the community during the mid-20th century. And it's being replaced by this shitty new stadium that's it's there because of, you know, who knows what corruption has led this stadium to be there. And worse, because this stadium is being built, which doesn't even have enough seats for an NHL team, they're tearing down the other stadium, the stadium that has served the community for years and years. So that's two local landmarks being raised for this shitty stadium. And I just think about how, you know, we're old enough to uh, see so much that we loved in this city get raised in the name of progress. And we're encouraged to think that a site can be boiled down to its commercial function. And on whose terms exactly is that commercial function being celebrated, you know? And we're told that this is just the inevitable march of progress. You know, you can't you can't argue with the market. And we're discouraged from mourning what we've lost. And we're also discouraged from thinking about what are the political decisions that are leading these seemingly neutral market forces into this place. I also like the movie a lot just because of what it says about memory. Uh, memory is just this constantly changing, constantly altering thing. And memory is ecstatic. It's more than just the sum total of like individual, you know, or particular fragments of events from the past. It is, it is so much more than that. Those fragments are imbued with meaning and they cross-pollinate and they have deep relationships with one another. The movie captures that very well. I would say something further in its praise, which is that I think it's one of the great Canadian films. In Canada, you are inundated, and we are inundated, with films about what does it mean to be Canadian? What is this place? What is our identity? You know, who are we? All this kind of stuff. And I feel like we're still not really sure, but there is kind of a generalized answer that we often get, which is that we're a sort of, you know, multiracial, uh, pluralist Switzerland or something with a Scandinavian welfare state attached to it. This is, you know, what I've called the, the maple-washed version of Canadian history and Canadian identity. But there's always kind of a, I feel, a lack of confidence in that kind of official narrative. There's an anxiety around it. It's something that I feel like a lot of our cultural edifice has worked very hard to construct and maintain. And that can kind of paper over the fact that, you know, actually we're a very decentralized country. And in the mid-20th century, there were a series of projects which tried to create sort of a single narrative about Canada and what it was and, you know, had some success, but a success which was limited. And so, you know, what you get is a lot of films and books and other uh, cultural paraphernalia, which, you know, channel a particular idea of Canada, but do so with a certain, you know, uncertainty and listlessness. And then along comes Guy Madden with My Winnipeg, a film which on paper could just be like a very standard, predictable, paint-by-the-numbers film about Winnipeg and he gives the city of his birth what he called in an interview that I found with which I quoted on that episode I'm going to paraphrase because I can't quite remember but he says you know I decided to give it the old fashioned you know hubristic American treatment I'm butchering it but he said something to that effect and um, I just wish we could make the whole of uh, why don't why don't they make the whole of the culture out of my Winnipeg (laughs) what's your best movie Okay, so you took this category very literally, and you were actually thinking about best movie. And look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend. I mean, it would be funny as a bit, but I don't think even my ironic powers could actually sustain this as a bit. 
I'm not going to sit here and pretend that this is a better movie than Existence or My Winnipeg, but I'm going to go with uh, the one from episode 349, The Donkey Revolution. This is oh, boo. Blue State. <laughs> now, I want, I want to justify... Blue State, folks. I want to justify this category, uh, or my, my interpretation of this category a little bit. I sort of, uh, I guess, torqued it a little bit to be the best movie for the podcast. Okay. And I bring this up specifically, you know, I nominated this one specifically because I feel like Will just does not give this film the respect it deserves as a subject of our podcast. This movie is not good. I want to be clear about that. Uh, this is the one with Breckenmeyer and Anna Paquin, where Breckenmeyer is like a John Gary guy or something, and then he goes to Canada and whatever. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a blogger. He's a Netroots guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's basically like an older version of me in 2004. But I don't know. Will I just thought this movie captured so it, it captured the sensibility of like. I don't know, fake early 2000s radicalism that was actually just sort of like you want Bush to be gone and that's your only political priority. It captured like the all the little details in it, like the fact that he has like a Carrie Edwards poster in his room, but then he also has like Che Guevara. Yeah. That, that was me. You know, that was me when I was a teenager and I and just and, and liberal <laughs> liberals and leftists and uh, left liberals uh, have all become much more siloed now. Like, <laughs> yeah, like that's right. some, somebody, was... <laughs> you know, Sasha Stone or I don't know, some other hack like that wouldn't have a Che Guevara poster <laughs> up now because that stuff in the American liberal imagination has become much more encoded with like Bernie bro shit. That's right. That's yeah. bad. Yeah. But but so that movie also like it had just the perfect ending. It's like where he comes back. I don't. America. remember the ending what happened well the ending is like he comes back to america oh and he's gonna run and he's gonna run because oh. it's like don't stop don't just complain like yeah. get in there or whatever. don't boo vote yeah so that's the film yeah right exactly so that's the film to me that's like best movie of the year for michael and us All the right. film that made me permanently breckenpilled waste your ballot <laughs> <laughs> but seriously uh fun to do another one of these i think it's the most fun i've had doing a michael and us award ceremony it's fun to reflect back on the year that was um, and I felt like, you know, the episodes, despite beginning the pod by talking about how, you know, I felt like the show was a little less topical this year, you know, revisiting, you know, a few of the films we did uh, made me realize just how connected we are to the zeitgeist, you know? Here's to 2023, folks. Onwards and upwards. Yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. Now watch this drive. Mm-hmm.